play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, comedian and the voice of Gene on the Bob's Burgers TV show and soon-to-be movie, Eugene Merman. And we're going to explore the history of food and comedy with Annie Eubank, senior associate editor at Gastro Obscura. Comedy and food have been together since comedy was invented. Slipping on banana peels, pies smashed in faces, we'll cover it all. But first, my interview with Eugene Merman. Dexter Holland, lead singer of the band Offspring, has a PhD in molecular biology. Comedian Aziz Ansari got a degree in marketing from NYU. Actor Rebel Wilson has a law degree. But Eugene Merman always knew what he wanted to be when he grew up. You graduated with a BA in comedy, and I was curious how you managed to rig that. Um, So I went to Hampshire College, where everyone designs their own major. And the thing that I wanted to do was comedy. But I took various classes, like from like writing to acting to the rise of mass culture or sociology and just like sort of piece together these things. But then also like I started a weekly show in the basement of my dorm. And then I did a one hour stand up act as my final project. So in a sense, it was actually really helpful because a lot of the things that I did in college ended up being the sort of things I did after like starting my own nights and doing things in a way that was different from the existing system at the time of comedy. Were you the only person that had that major? I mean, at the time, I think, yes. Though Since then, I know that like Emerson College, I think, has a comedy arts major mm-hmm. and other places have that maybe now. I don't know if after me, people created their own. In Hampshire, everyone designs their own major. So then uh-huh. you have like professors you work with that help you. Like I had a theater professor that was wonderful that sort of like guided me. You're probably though the only comedian who gets to say, I studied this in college. It's on my resume. Right, right. But also, I don't know how like, it's not like that's the thing that people look at before they let you do stand up comedy. But yes, I loved it. For me, it was really practical and like really like a great experience. That's awesome. Scrolling through Eugene's Instagram feed, it's clear that he loves food and does a lot of home cooking. In 2016, Eugene, his wife Katie, and their young son Oliver moved from Brooklyn to Cape Cod to live closer to family. Their kid had a yard to play in, and a big bonus was a bigger kitchen. I mean, in general, when we moved to Cape Cod, I realized that if I wanted either Indian food or Chinese food or Thai food or whatever it was, I would sort of have to make it largely. And so I, yeah, I started kind of ordering ingredients or going to, you know, markets and getting stuff and then making food at home. And then during the pandemic, yeah, I was just home. Cooking was one of the hobbies, meaning like some version of like mixing my time between cooking and despair. (laughs) You know, it's sort of like terrible news until things sort of started to look hopeful. For Eugene, the pandemic has been a double whammy of despair. His wife, Katie, died of breast cancer at the end of January 2020, just a few months before the entire world shut down. But Eugene kept cooking. He posted photos of homemade ricotta, hand-rolled pasta, roasted potatoes, pad thai, and vegetable tempura. 
I mean, it was nice to have something to do and to try and to learn. And, you know, I had, you know, considered taking cooking classes, classes, which I recently did, you know, after my wife died, I thought that I'd potentially do that. And yeah, I, I think I was finding different ways to sort of occupy time and my mind. You know, the thing about everything is both the pandemic and obviously my wife dying. Um, you know, you live in both. There's like a sadness that is there, but then there's also things to sort of look forward to mm -hmm. and work on. And so I think like getting to cook and sort of put my mind in other places doesn't change the fact that something is sad or that there is a pandemic, but it does give you, you know, you could do both things. So I did, I, I enjoyed the cooking and, and I also enjoyed making things and having Ollie try them. And, you know, like I started making these pancakes that I used to have a lot as a kid. Uh, these, these, they're called Elodzi, uh with apples. And I started making those and he loved those, you know, and when I make waffles, he loves the Yes. Can you talk more about that pancake dish? Is that something from your childhood? It's a Russian dish. That right? is something from my childhood. And I think there's different ways to make it. But I found at some point a recipe that I sort of tweaked that. Yeah, it's basically like pancakes made with kefir instead mm. of like milk or yogurt, maybe. So it's just a pancake with apples, but made with kefir. Does the kefir make it tangy or just like very... It gives it a little tang. Yeah, I think okay. it gives it a tang. Like I think my mom make it make it with like milk and lemon juice or something. I think there's different ways of making it tangy. Yeah. Yeah, it gives it a little tang. And then I started using sometimes flavored kefirs. But yeah, uh, that's something that he enjoyed and that I liked. And yeah, it was like a... I think a lot of people retreated to things in certain ways from their childhood. Oh, yeah. Comfort so, food. So yeah. 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 What are some of the big projects you got into during the pandemic? Because I read that you were even making your own tahini, which I was really impressed by. I did make my own tahini, but that's all you do, I think, is grind up sesame seeds. Yeah. In a, but yes, I was like doing that and then making hummus from it. And that was really fun. I mean, look, when you have sort of some time and a blender. <laughs> Oladi are similar to American pancakes, but they're taller and puffier and fluffier. They almost look like little souffles. Russians eat them sweet with jam or apples, how Eugene likes to make them, or topped with savory things like sour cream and smoked salmon, which I am all about. According to the website Russia Beyond, every single Russian grandmother can whip up a batch of Oladi, and they are so closely connected with Russian culture that they believe dreaming of Oladi means you will soon have a cheerful conversation with a relative or friend. Time for a quick break. But when we come back, Eugene Merman shares his last meal. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. 
And this month we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. What would your last meal be? So I think my last meal, I, I do think, I think it would probably be dim sum. Yeah, it's hard. It's sort of like somewhere between dim sum and tapas, which are sort of two versions of sides of a very similar coin. I think I guess I would go with dim sum because I think I have to pick between the two, right? I mean, you could have both. You basically like tiny foods, you know, that's what you could just a last yes. meal. Of if you wanted foods. to do a research into tiny foods, lots of tiny <laughs> foods, I don't know if that's possible. But yes, those are the I think the two things that I sort of do love. There's a restaurant in Boston called Toro that has really great tapas thing about dim sum or maybe authentic kind of Chinese food is sort of their stuff. That's really spicy and really delicious. So I do, I do love spicy foods. So what are your favorite things when you go out to dim sum, like the things that you must have, or they're not coming on the cart. So you have to save your stomach space in case they come by eventually. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess like, first of all, I really like trying stuff. So often if I haven't seen it, I'm very excited, but like, ribs and black bean sauce or various dumplings, taro, like the fried taro dumplings, yeah. uh, rice noodle with shrimp, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the kanji, I love the different kanjis. I get anxiety at dim sum because of the, when it's in a place with the carts, because I don't want to order too much too soon because I'm afraid of like, right. what if more better stuff comes later? I mean, it like, it starts to feel very existential. Of like, is this just what I'm like in life? Like, I don't want to make the wrong decision in case I miss out on something better later. But that is different. I know, which is also what's great sometimes when you go to a place that isn't carts, but you get to check off stuff where you mm -hmm. get to look and be like, oh, like this glutinous rice or this thing. And then you kind of know that you've gotten to pick stuff and you pick maybe then you can I can also easier pick a few things I haven't tried. But then also on the other side, like spicy things, there are like, you know, spicy sort of fish hot pots that I love. Yeah. Or like handled noodles with like lamb is is particularly exciting. That was, I think, the food I missed most during the pandemic, because it's something you want a lot of people to be sitting around a table so you can order more right. stuff. And and also to me, I just didn't feel like it was a delivery thing. And so I just waited. In Boston, I couldn't find any outdoor dim sum. But then I found that a place I love did deliver. So it mm. was like, you know, it was something. Yeah, it was, it was something. something.
for his last meal, Eugene Merman wants tapas and or dim sum. Basically, a bunch of tiny plates filled with different foods so he can taste a variety of dishes. Eugene is the second guest to choose dim sum as his last meal. The first was Dan Pfeiffer, senior advisor to President Obama and host of the podcast and HBO show Pod Save America. In that episode, we learned that dim sum was invented in China somewhere between 500 and 1,000 years ago. It's hard to say exactly when. But unlike now, where dim sum is all kinds of steamy dumplings stuffed with pork and shrimp and chives, the original dim sum actually didn't involve any food. It was a ritual for men to get together and drink tea. But after the People's Republic of China was established in the 19th century, food and drink combined and dim sum looked a whole lot more like what we're used to today. I am dipping back into that old Dan Pfeiffer episode to give you a taste of dim sum history with Clarissa Wei, an American journalist living in Taiwan. But a few years ago, when we first spoke, she was writing about food in Hong Kong. The reoccurring theme for every single dim sum place and throughout history is that there is tea. Um, and in Chinese culture, tea, hot tea is a digestive. It helps you digest your food and you never have dim sum without tea. Dim sum is typically eaten for breakfast. And in many restaurants, you don't order off of a menu. Little steam baskets and plates of food are pushed around the room on carts, and you get to choose what looks good. The West has a fascination with the dim sum on the carts. And originally, that was also the standard here in um, southern China, where they would, you know, have these four-tier carts and ladies pushing them and people screaming and you just grab what you want. But over the years, that has really gone out of vogue. And that's gone out of fashion even here in um, Hong Kong and in Guangzhou because it's a waste of food. And, and the quality um, goes down dramatically when you're pushing these things on carts. And, you know, someone doesn't take the dish for 20 minutes after that, it gets cold and stale and you have a wasted um, platter. Um, so now these cart-led dim sum places are very rare. If they do exist, they're sort of out of a point of nostalgia but here in Hong Kong, the fanciest dim sum places are the ones with the most acclaim and the highest quality. They don't do the cart-driven dim sum. And that's purely just out of consideration for the customer. A, if you order it, you get it made to order. It's fresh. It's hot. And people aren't as attached to the novelty of the carts. To learn more about dim sum, go back and listen to the Dan Pfeiffer episode. When we had fashion designer Betsy Johnson on the show, I really wanted to find a guest at the crux of food and fashion. So producer Laura and I are having our little meeting, and she suggests that we get Lady Gaga on the show to talk about her infamous meat dress. I love this kind of big thinking. And while we didn't get Lady Gaga on the show, I loved this idea. And we were able to book the designer who crafted her meat dress. So along the same lines for this episode, I wanted to talk about food and comedy. From the very start, people have associated, you know, food with things being funny. That's Annie Eubank, senior associate editor at Gastro Obscura. We're talking like the ancient Greek era of comedy. Aristophanes and all these other Greek playwrights were writing plays that would be performed during festivals. And a lot of times those events were associated with Dionysus, who was the god of wine, fertility and food. So from the very start, people were writing all of these jokes 
having a lot to do with food, especially seafood and all of its kind of like salacious undertones, various fish looking like genitals and all of that. What kind of seafood and what kind of pervy little jokes were they making in Greece? People would compare eels to penises and sea urchins to, you know, women's genitals. In a way, we're still making those kind of seafood jokes. I don't feel like people are doing it on a stage. I mean, I guess you can say we're still making them in a very modern way because of the eggplant emoji. Like that is kind of our Greek food comedy in a way. You know, humans haven't changed all that much over the last couple thousand years. There's a kind of bivalve called a gooey duck, and it really looks like a penis. And people just find that hilarious. Oh, yeah. That is the Pacific Northwest clam. Where you are. Uh huh. Yeah. I've always called it penis of the sea. It is quite vulgar to look at. There you go. And (laughs) people just still find that kind of stuff hilarious. Okay, let's talk about the banana peel, because that is a classic vaudeville gag. So before, though, we talk about it in comedy, I guess we have to talk about the history of banana peels in New York City. Way before it was uh, a comedic thing, it was actually kind of a tragic thing. So bananas were a huge street food in late 19th century New York. People would sell them on the street and they were considered one of the perfect foods because they came pre-wrapped. But the thing is, is that people would just drop the peels on the street. And New York at the time was extremely corrupt. New York was filthy. Like other cities had working street cleaning services, but New York did not. And so people would be walking down like a flight of stairs in a public place and they would fall and they would break their arms. They'd break their legs. They'd die because they slipped on a banana peel. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the chief of police even put out a statement. I wrote down this quote here because it's amazing. It's the bad habits of the banana skin dwelling particularly on its tendency to toss people into the air and bring them down with terrific force on the hard pavement. That was Teddy Roosevelt who said that because he was chief of police at the time. You know, New York at the time was also a really big center of the performing arts. So, of course, you know, comedians seeing this kind of thing happen every day, they started to write about it. And, you know, it entered the vaudeville circuit. And later on, it became a silent film staple as well. Like Charlie Chaplin, he was kind of grumpy about it. He just said, all these audiences want to see, they want to see someone trip on a banana peel and fall through a manhole. Like, it was just (laughs) ubiquitous, but that's because people really liked it. And, you know, eventually New York did get a competent street cleaning service. And so it became much less of a problem for people to fall and hurt themselves or die because of banana peels. But it was so ubiquitous for decades that it just entered the comedy toolbox and it's never quite left. Of course, like now, if you know, if you see a banana peel gag, you know, it really is very vintage. You know, no one's playing that for serious laughs these days. But, you know, it is a throwback to an earlier time when that was extremely funny. Another big vintage comedy trope is the cream pie, a super popular gag in vaudeville and old silent films. The epicenter for cream pie comedy was Keystone Studios in the Echo Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. Today, that building is a storage unit. But Annie said there's a little plaque on the side of the building letting you know where Keystone once stood. To go back to like when was like the first 
like on film pie in the face. There was a film short in 1909 called Mr. Flip, where this guy is going around like he's like hitting on like every single girl he sees and every single one of them gets revenge against him somehow. A seamstress like stabs him with her scissors, that kind of thing. And the final scene is that he's at a restaurant kind of chatting up a waitress and she picks up a pie and she just slaps it in his face. But really, the thing that people loved to see was airborne pies. People love to watch pies fly through the air and smack someone in the face. The first time anyone ever threw a pie was from a Keystone Films movie in 1913 that was called A Noise from the Deep. And that starred Roscoe Arbuckle, better known as Fatty Arbuckle, and Mabel Normand. And Mabel picks up the pie and throws it. Like that just became the calling card from Keystone Studios, like to the point that there was kind of a general store across the street from Keystone where this woman named Sarah Brenner, she just sold general stuff, but she also sold pies. And eventually it got to the point that Keystone was sourcing all their pies from her and that became her entire job. And there was a special recipe that she used, like the custard had to be like super like thin so that it would fly everywhere, you know. In 1927, there was a Laurel and Hardy movie where they literally used 3,000 pies. This street brawl that takes place with pies flying every which way. It's appropriately called the Battle of the Century. But by then, that was a bit tired. You know, by the early 30s, people were advertising comedies by saying, we swear there's no pies in this. (laughs) Uh, But just because it became such a trope But it was such a trip by then that we're still talking about it almost 100 years later. When I was thinking about different foods used in comedy, one of the first things I thought of was Fozzie Bear getting pelted by tomatoes. You know, that's the most famous symbol of food and comedy, I think, is people throwing tomatoes. Entertainment was not the same as it is today, where you're supposed to kind of like stay in your seat and not say anything and be really quiet and let the performer do their thing. It was very interactive in a way. And a lot of time that interaction was that people would throw things at performers they didn't like. Why tomatoes? You know, if you look this up online, there's all of these like legends like, oh, you know, people were throwing tomatoes at the Globe Theater, which wasn't true because that was kind of before tomatoes got really established in English cooking. Usually it was rotten food because I feel like even back then they didn't want to throw the good stuff. And so you you see tons of references to like rotten eggs and that kind of thing. I have done stand-up comedy a total of three times, and it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my whole life. So I can't imagine the added nervousness of knowing that you could get pelted with rotten food if people didn't like your jokes. You know, like already it's hard if it's a silent room and nobody laughs, but to have to walk out covered in stinky rotten tomatoes is a whole other element. Yeah, and sometimes people would just go to these shows to throw rotten food at the performers. You know, we definitely don't do that anymore, but that still lingers in our culture. You know, even the film review website, Rotten Tomatoes, that's what it's based on. Right. In high school, at least at my high school, the cool thing to happen on your birthday was that your friends would bring whipped cream in a can to school and spray you down like when you least expected it. And it was a status thing. Like if you were walking around covered in whipped cream, you were very cool. But I remember it stunk because, you know, it's milk, it's cream. And after like 30 minutes and you're sitting in class and it was so stinky. But now that you're saying this, it kind of feels like a variation on that. I mean, I don't know. I guess it was supposed to be funny, but it was also supposed to be like a way to show your love to me. 
but yeah. It was the um, opposite. It was yeah. a way to show that your friends liked you. Yeah. In comedy, at least, it had a very negative connotation. And we see it a lot in film and comedy, especially like children's cartoons, like Looney Tune era cartoons. It became a symbol of someone was giving a bad performance, so you throw food at them. So it even after it stopped happening, we still know about it. It's so interesting to learn about these things because comedy is such a living, breathing organism and it tells you so much about what's going on at the time. You know, I mean, I have to say I'm not a big fan of a lot of current comedy because it is so political and there's so much seriousness to it because there's so much of that going on in the world. I kind of prefer comedy as an escape, but it really does tell you, you know, what is happening and what the mood is and, you know, what bad and good things are happening in the world. And so I'm curious, you know, why food and pies and banana peels why why people were so into it at this time like i wonder what was happening in the world that this reflected on yeah that's a really interesting question i i'm kind of of a similar attitude especially i was looking up modern examples of food comedy and a lot of it's like gross out or cringe comedy uh-huh. where like some someone does something you know like terrible to a food or someone eats something disgusting i do feel like sometimes we look back at comedies in the past and we we, like we can scoff and say, oh, that was like really like that was very simplistic. You know, what a what a simple, innocent time they were living in. But I feel like it was especially film was such a new medium that people were delighted by things that they had just never seen on film before. Even if it is a bit more like innocent and simple, it's still really wonderful to watch sometimes. My favorite food scene in comedy is an old one. It's from... Uh, the Gold Rush, which came out in 1925, where Charlie Chaplin, who, you know, Charlie Chaplin, he, like, he had opinions about banana peels and pies and everything. But he does this wonderful scene where he sticks two forks into two bread rolls, and it looks like a pair of legs with shoes on, hmm. and he makes them dance at the table. And it is just the most, like, charming, wonderful thing you've ever seen. I actually just read that audiences back then loved it so much that they would demand that the projectionist rewind the film so that they can watch it again. Oh, I love that. So I, I just thought that was lovely. He was really, really big into food and comedy because my greatest memory of him is him eating his own shoe with a fork and knife. There you go. Yeah. And it's actually funny. The, the woman who threw the first pie on film, Mabel Normand, was his mentor and one of the very first people to direct him. So he probably took a lot of uh, inspiration from her as well. Why do you think that food is funny? Why do you think so many people use food in comedy? I think that food is a really everyday thing, but we're always shocked to see it be used in a way that we don't expect, especially if there's something like a beautiful cream pie, you know, decorated for a special occasion. We'd really want to eat that. And seeing someone pick it up and throw it as a weapon is shocking, I think, no matter what era you're in. And so I think it, it's just taking the familiar and using it in a way that we don't expect. And I feel like in a lot of ways, comedy is about what we don't expect. Exactly. What are your favorite food and comedy moments? Send me a note on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. I can't think of a specific movie, but when I was a kid, I loved food fight scenes, especially if the food fight was in a summer camp cafeteria. It just sounded like the most fun and rebellious thing. And I secretly wish that I could be a part of one so that I could have a bunch of spaghetti on my head hanging down like hair. All right, we're going to pause. But after the break, Eugene Merman, who plays Gene on Bob's Burgers, 
struggles to tell me what his favorite burger is. As the world opens up a bit more, Eugene will once again get to perform comedy. Are you afraid in any way like, oh, my God, what if I have stage fright now? What if things because you haven't performed for so long? I don't think I would have stage fright as much as I would just fail at at doing comedy. But you can always fail. That's the nice thing about stand up. You know, you can always have people not laughing and being like, I don't know why this person thinks these are jokes. <laughs> Years ago, I did stand up three times. The first time it was great. The second time it was good. The third time I bombed. But then you're supposed to keep going. And I couldn't. And so I always wonder, plenty of people keep going and how you do that. Like, what was your mindset when you would bomb like in your early days? Very similarly, like, so the first time I did it, I did very well, but I shook like I was shaking. I was terrified. And then the second time I bombed, and I think it's just, I loved it. You know, there was a time where people would talk about like doing stand-up to like get to act or do something else. And it's like, I don't know, if you don't like stand-up, I highly don't recommend doing it. But I loved it. And for years, it's sort of this up and down. And even now, like when you try a new joke, there's no particular reason it would work. So like, I think that what happens with time is a comfort in failing more than anything. But yeah, it feels awful. And then you judge yourself as a person for a little bit and then you start over and you're like oh maybe I'll fix the joke and then I'll be a better person that's what I wondered if there was kind of a pep talk to be like it's okay this is gonna happen just keep moving yes I think you there is for a while I think when you first start or for me I didn't know if it was like oh maybe the audience didn't get it but then I think at some point I was like, whatever is happening, it is my job to figure out how to convey the thing I think is funny to an audience. And I think that when you put the sort of onus on yourself to figure out how to communicate something, it actually is sort of empowering because you're like, I think I can fix this, whether it's a story or joke or idea. Definitely a pep talk. But then there's a lot of like, just, I don't know, like feeling bad at a thing not working. (laughs) One more question, and this is like the most obvious cliche question, but I feel like I just have to ask you, since you've been on Bob's Burgers for so long, what is your perfect burger? Oh, I don't know. I do love a gorgonzola, bacon maybe, mushrooms, but I think someone who's more chef-y would be like, oh, here's what you'd want. Actually, there's a really great burger at uh, this place in Cambridge called Little Donkey that's very delicious. So maybe the stuff they put on it. What do they put? What do they put? Because you don't have to, I, it doesn't matter like what's balanced and cheffy. I just mean like, what do you love? Oh, like, I know. I know. Have? I yeah. forget. I think there's cheese and maybe a tiny bit of foie gras or something. Oh, I, fancy. I, but I forget because it's sort of like a slightly fancy version of just like a fast food burger. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty delicious. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's very fair to ask me about a burger and I understand why someone <laughs> would. I don't know why I am like, well, I don't have an answer for this. I've only had 11 years to prepare a burger (laughs) answer, and I have not done it. And that was Eugene Merman's last meal. The new Bob's Burgers movie comes out May 27th, so make sure to check that out. There is also a cookbook. It's called The Bob's Burgers Burger Book, Real Recipes for Joke Burgers. A lot of good puns in here. There's the poutine on the Ritz burger, the I've created a Munster burger, and the we're here, we're Gruyere, get used to it burger, amongst many others. 
Eugene also has a documentary you can watch online called It Started as a Joke. And coincidentally, per the conversation we were having earlier, it has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Thanks to Annie Eubank, Senior Associate Editor at Gastro Obscura, an awesome website and book about fun food facts and oddities from all around the world. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, so I was thrilled to get the invite. Hey, thank you. It's so funny. I don't know if you feel this with your writing sometimes, but I just feel like I'm just doing it in a vacuum and maybe nobody listens. So I'm like, oh yeah, it's public. People hear it. People like it. Thank you. And it's especially funny, you know, when you write an article like the Python throwing one that you found and then several years later someone's like hey can we talk about this and I'm like sure thanks to Clarissa Way her first cookbook made in Taiwan comes out next year if you're not already subscribed to your last meal just click that little button so you'll never miss an episode and if you like the show tell your friends or write us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify it only takes a minute it is so easy to do but it makes such a difference in getting the show out to more people which makes it easier to book great guests and allows us to continue making the show I'm Rachel Bell and this is your last meal Hold on, there's I think Sorry. someone at my door. So hold on for one second. Uh... It's 2021. People don't come to the door anymore. And if you like the show, tell your friends.